Welcome to Real Life. Today we will be continuing our series on the book of Philippians. Led by Charlotte Knight, this study breaks down each section within this book to really get into what Paul is writing to this church. It's our hope that through this class you will gain a deeper understanding of how to interact with and study scripture. Let's get into it. Okay, so tonight we are starting Philippians chapter 3. Just a very brief recap of where we've been so that we keep the big picture in mind. Philippians chapter 1, we label that the single mind. It's all about the gospel, having your mind focused on the gospel. Chapter 2 was the submissive mind. This was about submitting to one another and treating others above yourself. And for chapter 3, we label chapter 3 the spiritual mind. And we can see from what we've studied in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that both people and circumstances can rob us of our joy if we don't have the proper mindset toward them. In chapter 3, we'll see that things can rob us of our joy as well. That will be the overall picture in the chapter, recognizing the things in life that rob us of joy and how we should view those things in order to keep our joy. Do we have our mind set on earthly things or heavenly spiritual things? We're supposed to be looking at earth from heaven's point of view, not the other way around, not from a fleshly point of view. We should always see everything through that lens. Now, the word things obviously is a very vague word. It could mean a lot of things. And it does include material things, but also immaterial things, such as reputation, achievement, fame, ideas, philosophies, opinions, and even our thoughts. Those kind of things can rob us of our joy if we are not keeping our mind in the right place. And this, the title of the chapter, The Spiritual Mind, that idea comes from verses 18 through 20, which we won't be covering in full until a couple weeks from now. But I just wanted to go ahead and read it tonight just so that we get an idea of where we're going with it. So verses 18 through 20 says, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 11 today. I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we will take it in chunks. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, 
who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself has, have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I'll just let you know up front, this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. So if I get a little excited and sound a little preachy, that's why. <laughs> it's something that I've um, studied several times and just so empowered by it, I guess is, is a good way to say it. So just wanted to let you know that up front. I might be a little excited tonight. So what... Paul does here in this section is he kind of breaks it into two chunks. He first starts talking about works righteousness, a righteousness based on works. And then he starts talking about faith righteousness. So verses 1 through 6 is where we see him talking about works righteousness. And then everything after that is the faith righteousness. The first three verses is kind of like an exhortation, a warning. He's giving them some advice. And notice he starts off once again saying rejoice. He's reminding them to rejoice. Because he's saying we're going to talk about some things that may be kind of difficult or deep or you know, just hard to grab onto. And I don't want your joy to be stolen. So right away, I want to make sure that you rejoice. It's important. And he uses this word safeguard, which I think he's kind of talking about two different things. He's talking about when we rejoice, when we praise the Lord for what he has done, we guard our heart from those opportunities we have to get discouraged or afraid or uh, drawn astray. Rejoicing is important. But also Paul's saying that he's telling us things to keep us safe. He's warning us about some things he wants us to be aware of and to watch out for. In verse 2, he tells us what those things are, and he uses some words to describe these people that it's kind of interesting. He says dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, 
doesn't sound like something I would ever want anybody to call me, but these are words that he used for a specific reason. He wanted them to have a, a, a really good idea of what these people were. And one of the groups of people that they needed to safeguard against, as we know, there were lots of false teachings that were going around. There were lots of things that people were saying and doing to try to draw people away from the Lord, from the truth of the word, which is why he had talked earlier about being willing to fight for the faith, being willing to fight for the truth. So some of these people were Jewish believers who were constantly pressuring them to become Jews, saying that they couldn't be Christians unless they became Jews first. Unless they were willing to follow all of the Old Testament law, they could not be saved. They couldn't be Christians. And since the group of believers in Philippi that Paul is writing this letter to were predominantly Gentiles, they were a target for, from these Jewish Christians. They wanted to make sure that these Gentiles were Jews first before they could be saved. So they were a target for this particular group of people. And if you want to sometime later study uh, a little bit more about that whole mess that was going on there, in Acts chapter 15, it records the council of people who came together and talked about the gospel and concluded that Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. The book of Galatians was primarily written to combat that particular false teaching. So if you want to study that in depth, Galatians would be a good place to do that because they wanted to make sure that these Gentiles knew that they did not have to become Jewish. It wasn't a requirement for salvation. But this was a big problem that they needed to have a clear understanding of so that they wouldn't be so easily ensnared by religion that would undermine their faith in Christ because their faith in Christ is what saved them, not the works of religion, any religion. So Paul used these three terms to describe these people. He first called them dogs. And that word in the Greek literally means a dog. And it can also be used metaphorically to talk about uh, a man of impure mind, impure thoughts. And these people followed Paul around from place to place, you know, snapping at him, barking their false teachings. So he referred to them as dogs. He saw them as dangerous, and then he called them evildoers. Since these people were promoting that you need works to save you and not just faith in Jesus, Paul wanted to make sure that people understood that your works can't save you. And not only that, but good works aren't really good. If they come from the flesh... They're glorifying the person instead of coming from the Spirit and glorifying God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away. So those, all those things that we do even though they may be good things, 
They're never going to be good enough to earn a salvation. They're like filthy rags. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Obviously, we know that we are supposed to do good works. There are things that God wants us to do. But that's after we're saved. That is not what brings us to salvation. We can never, ever earn salvation. It is a gift. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then the third term he uses to describe these people that he's warning the Philippians about is mutilators of the flesh. He's specifically referring to circumcision because that is one of the things that they really were pressing hard on, stressing that circumcision was required, it was necessary to be saved, which we know is not true. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. It is an inward work. And there isn't any religious practice that can save us from our sins. Nothing. Not church attendance, not taking communion, not saying some special Hail, Hail Mary, you know, none of those things can save us from our sins. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. That is the only way that we can be saved. Verse 3 moves us on to where he is contrasting a false Christian to a true Christian. Paul is showing us some of the characteristics of true Christians. The first thing that he says is that this, this true Christians, these true Christians worship and serve God in spirit. They worship and serve God in spirit. In John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
true worship of God and services to God is not, it's not just a matter of action, it's a condition of the heart. You know, we can do things on the outside just going through the motions and our heart isn't really in it. True service to God is from the heart. It overwhelms our thoughts and our attitudes. It flows from deep inside us and it's stirred by the Spirit of God within us. The second thing that uh, Paul tells us that true Christians do is that they boast in Jesus. You know, people who are just religious, they boast about their works. They boast about the things they do for God. They, but we boast about what Christ did for us instead of what we do for him. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So those who are true Christians boast in Jesus not in their own works. And number three, he says, true Christians put no confidence in the flesh. You know, the Bible has absolutely nothing good to say about the flesh. Nothing. John 6, verse 63 says, The, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Romans 7, 18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, the flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Why would we put confidence in the flesh? Why? When we know what scripture says, and, and there are so many more, but why would we put confidence in the flesh? Why would we think that there's any possible thing that we could do in our own flesh to earn salvation? There is only one good work, and that is the finished work of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's Jesus. That's real cleansing power right there. 
So we see in verse 1 through 3, he's giving us the warning, the exhortation. Verse 4 through 6, he's, he's starting to give us his personal example of his own lifestyle that he was living, the way he was living, to warn us from his own personal example against that lifestyle based on works. He was kind of given like his resume, so to speak, all the things that he had accomplished. He had a promising career as a religious leader. He had great training. He had all the right things going for him in his family line. You know, one by one, he began talking, walking us through his relationship to the nation of Israel, his relationship to the law, even his relationship to Israel's enemies. And as religious people do, he was comparing himself to standards set by men instead of standards set by God. He was referring to how things looked on the outside. You know, Jesus many times made it clear that it's not just our actions that are sinful. We can have sinful attitudes, sinful appetites, not just our actions. So we always have to consider those things that other people can't see. Things that are on the inside. And just as a side note here, all these things that Paul is listing about himself, these labels that he's given himself, all these groups that he identifies with, and he's about to tell us that it all counts for nothing. So this hits home in our culture because we are so focused on this group that I identify with, this kind of person that I identify with, all of these things that we get so wrapped up in. And whatever labels that you have for yourself, whatever you identify with, it counts for nothing. It has no eternal value. It doesn't get you any brownie points in heaven. So we probably shouldn't be focusing so much on these things here on earth because in heaven... They don't have any value. You know, things like race, family reputation, ancestry, nationality, church affiliation, titles, church duties, religious works, political affiliation. So many times we think that these things make us better than the next person. And it doesn't doesn't. It's all temporary and won't matter in eternity. So we have to stop pretending that it matters so much now. It, it doesn't. Unity goes out the window when we act like these things make one person better than another or one person more righteous than another. It's, there's no righteousness attached to any of that stuff. And you know, in our American culture, <clears throat> There are lots of subcultures we have within America, and we have to understand that some of those cultural norms are steeped in sin. And you're identifying yourself with something that is ungodly. The only culture that should matter to us is the culture of the church of God. God's standard and his culture. We're part of a new culture, which totally supersedes all the other stuff. We are children of God. We've been born again, so whatever situation we were born into, it is ran in the ground compared to 
where we are now, our relationship with the Lord. But Paul lived his life by these labels, and they were important to him. They were what he clung to. That's how he saw himself. That was his identity. And he compared himself to other people who were not quite so devoted to religion. But one day, Paul's eyes were open to the truth. And instead of comparing himself to other people, he compared himself to Jesus and realized all of his works, everything that he worked so hard to attain, that reputation could never be enough, could never measure up to the Lord Jesus. He realized that all those labels that meant so much to him and to the people that he knew were of no value to the kingdom of God. None. So he traded in his works righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So after explaining all of this works righteousness, he now begins to talk about faith righteousness, real righteousness in verses 7 through 11. He begins pointing out all the things that were lost, all the things he lost, and what he gained by turning his back on his old life and becoming hated by those who used to adore him. Verses 7 and 8, we see this word, well, depending on what translation you have, uh, could say consider or count. This Greek word means a belief resting not on one's inner feeling or sentiment, but on the due consideration of external grounds, the weighing and comparing of facts. So he put a lot of thought into it. He examined his life to figure out what was really important. What is really important here? Of all of these things that have been important to me, what's important and what's not? See, if we focus on stuff that isn't really important, that carries no eternal value, it's very hard to have joy. And Paul's telling us out throughout this whole thing, we need to rejoice. We need to have joy. And if you're carrying all this stuff with you that really has no eternal value, it's really hard to have joy. Sometimes we need to throw some stuff out. We need to clean house and figure out what's really important. Keeping in mind that the things that Paul had been clinging to seemed to be commendable in his culture. They were good things to the people that he hung with. And of course, by this culture, we're talking about his religious culture, not worldly culture. Although we can certainly make that application to someone you know, who's successful according to worldly standards. But Paul had a lot of religious zeal. I mean, clearly, he was out there killing Christians because he was zealous for what he believed in. He was a Pharisee. He was very successful in his religious culture. He did everything he was supposed to do. But, you know, sometimes we can be so passionate about something but still be dead on the inside. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, 
Jesus addressed the Pharisees, of which Paul was one. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then um, Matthew 23, verse 27, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the ones that thought they had it all together. They knew everything that there was to know. They had it all figured out. They were walking the walk. That's how they saw themselves. But Jesus said, no. You just look good on the outside. Your actions to everybody else look great, but on the inside, you're dead. You're dead on the inside. And all of those things looked good to people, but it was just garbage. And Paul says, I'm throwing it all away. Instead, he wants to focus on the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But just think for a second about all the labels we give ourselves. Think about it. All the things that we value, how we identify ourselves, all the things that we personally take a stand for, and a lot of those things are important and they're good. You know, in this country, we're so passionate about our freedoms. We're passionate about the causes that we're willing to fight for in protests or in the voting booth. Think about all those things that you highly value. And then think for a moment, if someone you love was on their deathbed and they didn't know Jesus, which of those things would you want to speak to them about at that moment? Social issues? Political issues? Are those the things that you would want to speak to them about when they're getting ready to take their last breath? Or would you instead want to tell them that we all fall short of the glory of God? We all deserve eternal death. It's by the grace of God that we can have eternal life. And talk to them about repentance and the importance of acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And tell them that all they need to do is confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord. Think about it. You know, all of the causes that we fight for, many of those things that cause division amongst Christians, and all the material things that we work so hard to fight for and to fight to protect, they're all garbage. Garbage compared to knowing Jesus. Paul uses this phrase, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Value so much higher than anything else that you can place value on. Anything that you can place value on. Knowing Jesus is more valuable. You know, Paul talks about it being so valuable. You know, what exactly is it? What is exactly knowing Jesus? You know, when I read this, it makes me think of that the moment when I'm going to go to heaven and finally see Jesus face to face. Knowing Jesus, seeing him face to face, 
And I think about so many times when we want to draw people to the Lord, one of the things we like to say is, if you go to heaven, you'll get to see your loved ones again. You know, your parents that have passed away, or maybe you've had a, a child that passed away, you know, friends and family members. That's the drawing point. You get to see your loved ones again. And not me. That's a bonus. But I get to see Jesus face to face. He is the prize. He's the treasure in heaven. I get to see Jesus who bled and died for me so that I can be in relationship with him so that I could even go to heaven. He's there. I get to see him. Everything else is just a bonus. Knowing Jesus, you know, no matter how much you love your spouse, your children, your parents, everybody on this earth, anybody, there's no love you could ever experience from any other source that's greater than the love of Jesus. None. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Verse 9, he explains what real righteousness is. That which comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God. Doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from God. And remember, everything that God requires of us, He provides for us. He requires righteousness and holiness. And He provides it for us. It comes from Him. Paul begins explaining to us that Although he has lost so much, he has gained so much more. And he continues that thought into verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 is one of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So powerful. I could talk about verse 10 for an hour. Just verse 10. So powerful. But Paul is telling us that he wants to know Christ. Now, one of the things I love about the Greek language but unfortunately we lose so much in English, is that word, know. <laughs> in Greek, there are several words for the word know. In English, we just have know. But in Greek, they have several words, and they all have a slightly different meaning. So there's so much depth there when you study it in the Greek that we just kind of lose some of that. So... If you ever get around to doing a word study, that's a good word to look up. And you look up the different scriptures that have the different types of the word know, and it's, it blows your mind. Or at least it does me, because I'm into that kind of thing. But this particular word is the word gnosko. And from the um, Greek dictionary, it says the, in the New Testament... Gnosko frequently indicates a relation between the person knowing and the object known. 
in this respect, what is known is of value or importance to the one who knows. Such knowledge is obtained not by mere intellectual activity, but by operation of the Holy Spirit, consequent upon acceptance of Christ. Nor is such knowledge marked by finality, meaning you don't know it and then that's it means you continue to grow in that knowledge. You continue to know more and more. Now, isn't that different than just thinking about our English word, know? And that verb, gnosko, is also used to convey the thought of a connection or union as between a man and a woman. It's a very intimate thing. In comparison, we see earlier in verse 8, the word know, uh, and that is a different Greek word. It's the word gnosis, which means primarily a seeking to know, an inquiry, an investigation, and it denotes uh, knowledge of spiritual truth. So there's a progression there in our knowing of the Lord. So what is it that Paul wants to know so deeply, so intimately? He tells us about three things he wants to know intimately. And the first one is Christ. I want to know Christ. He wants to be in an intimate, growing, thriving relationship with Jesus. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him personally, intimately. And then he wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to have an intimate, growing, thriving relationship with the power of his resurrection, which we know is the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That great power of the Holy Spirit that is available to us, the power that resurrected Jesus. Paul said, I want to know that. I want to have an intimate relationship with that kind of power. Don't you want that? Don't you want to have an intimate relationship with the power of the Holy Spirit? Nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. And then he says, the third thing that I want to know is participation in his sufferings. Paul says, I want to have an intimate, growing, thriving relationship with the sufferings of Christ. Now, the word participation is the Greek word koinonia, which if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably heard that Greek word before. 
It's the word fellowship. It means association, a joint participation. It's even used for intercourse. So it is very intimate. And the fact that Paul uses the word know, gnosko, I want to know. I want to know. And then he uses koinonia. So there's a double whammy there when he's referring to the sufferings of Jesus. He really wants to be intimate with the sufferings of Jesus. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Really sounds strange to us. But Paul says, I want to know. I want to know his sufferings. So we have to stop and think for a minute. Okay, so what is it that Christ suffered? What did he suffer? You know, he experienced a lot of pain. Physical pain and emotional pain. Betrayal. Rejection. False accusations. Being misunderstood. Having his rights taken away. Loneliness. You know, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, in Gethsemane when Jesus was praying so hard that he started sweating droplets of blood and he's looking at Peter and James and John and says, come on, keep watch with me and pray. But they didn't. They slept. And he pleaded with them three times, come on, keep watch with me and pray. And they didn't. They slept. You know, if you've ever felt alone in your desire to know Jesus more. If you've ever felt like, man, am I just weird? Why do I spend so much time with the Lord? Why do I want so badly to grow in my relationship with the Lord? And my friends, the people around me, they don't. They're not interested. Jesus understood what, what that was like. You know, come watch with me and pray. And they would just sleep. Jesus was so intensely praying that he was sweating droplets of blood. And as intensely as we are trying to know the Lord, we're not sweating droplets of blood. So he knew even greater than we'll ever know what it's like to be out on that limb when everyone around you is busy doing something else and you're really trying to hone in on Jesus studying his word, spending time in prayer, worshiping the Lord. Jesus understands what loneliness is. He understands. And if we're going to participate in his suffering, that's one of the things that we participate in. Knowing that you're going to be alone sometimes, out on that limb of serving Jesus, of Standing for the word of God, holding to that standard when the whole world around you is wanting to go the other direction, to please people, and all you want to do is please the Lord. Your eyes are on him. He is the standard. He's the goal. Suffering for the Lord. Then Paul says, becoming like him in his death. You know, we're, we're all going to suffer. The Bible says if you're a Christian, if you're living for the Lord, you're going to suffer to one degree or another. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. 
we're going to suffer to one degree or another, but it makes a difference if you're willingly participating in that suffering. Your attitude about the suffering, having a deep relationship with Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you when you are participating in that suffering. We become like Jesus in his death. And what exactly does that mean, become like Jesus in his death? Well, you have to stop and think about what was Jesus like in his death. When he's in that process of walking towards the cross, what was he like? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what was he like in his death? He wasn't defensive. He wasn't up there shouting, demanding his way, demanding his rights. He chose to lay down his life, to put all of that aside for the sake of me and you, for relationship with me and you. He was surrounded by people who were against him, but he remained faithful and chose to love them anyway. He was obedient to the Father, and he trusted him. He was forgiving of the very people who abused him and killed him. That's what Jesus was like in his death. And Paul says, I want to become like him in his death. And we can do that as we know him, know the power of the Holy Spirit, and participate in his sufferings, we can become like Jesus in his death. And then notice in verse 11, he says, somehow, and so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it almost sounds like he's doubting somehow but he's not doubting it's just his acknowledgement that even after he does all these things even after he's participating in the sufferings of Jesus he's acknowledging that his salvation comes from God through it all making sure he is humble in all of this he is acknowledging I still did not earn it I still did not earn it. Everything that I'm going through, the beatings, the imprisonment, betrayal, people stabbing me in the back, turning their back on me, no matter what, my salvation is from God alone. God alone. So important for us to remember that. So important. He acknowledges his salvation comes from God. It's completely outside of his control or his grasp. But he longs for the completion of the process. He longs for it. 
You know, Paul painted this detailed picture of the difference between works righteousness and faith righteousness and how no matter what we do, we can never, ever earn our salvation. We can never, ever be good enough. It's so important for us to hear that because we always have it in our mind, in our culture, this striving to be good enough. I want to be good enough. I want to be good enough. We can't. And we can be satisfied in knowing that I'm not good enough, and I don't have to be. I don't have to be. Because Jesus loves me anyway. He died for me anyway. I can't earn it. I can never be good enough to earn his love, to earn his forgiveness. But he loves me anyway. I said a couple weeks ago, how freeing is that? We can get off of that hamster wheel and stop feeling like we have to be good enough. We can't. We can't be good enough. Paul reminds us of that. He gives us a vivid picture of what it means to have a spiritual mind instead of a fleshly mind. A mind that is led by the Holy Spirit and not led by the flesh. A mind that sees things from heaven's point of view, from an eternal perspective, instead of our fleshly perspective. All the comparisons that we do, comparing ourselves to other people, all of those labels, all of those identities, the things we identify ourselves with, that's thinking fleshly. We have to have a spiritual mind. You can't have joy when you're focused on all those things. You can't. Because you're constantly thinking, well, I'm better than so-and-so, or so-and-so is better than me because they're in this group or that group. It's garbage. You know, whether we're focusing on the material things in this world, which we obviously largely have a problem with that, or the immaterial things, like we talked about a reputation. Paul had a great reputation. He threw it away. Our ideas, our philosophies, those things don't bring us joy. And no matter what political party you vote for, it doesn't make you more righteous than the next person. It doesn't. It just brings division. And it won't matter in eternity. Joy comes from intimately knowing Jesus. And knowing that salvation comes from faith in Him. Knowing Him, knowing the power of the resurrection, having that intimate relationship. And yes participation in his sufferings. When we have a right attitude, a right mindset towards all those things that are coming at us. And as things go on and on in our culture, it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And there's more and more pressure for us to cave to the standards of the culture. And we're going to participate more and more in those sufferings if we allow ourselves to be willing and to grow in our relationship with the Lord, we're going to participate in those sufferings. And as we do that, 
as we are willing to lay ourselves down, die to self, and participate in those sufferings, we become more like him in his death. It doesn't become so important anymore that we defend ourselves. What becomes important is knowing Jesus, seeing him face to face, intimately knowing Jesus. Uh, I was telling um, everyone before you guys walked in that there was a song that I wanted to play, but the internet connection isn't very good in here. Um, but there was a song that was written based on Philippians chapter 3, and it's called Knowing You. And it's a beautiful song. So I recommend if you, if you have time later, look it up on YouTube. That's where I found the a video of it. It has the lyrics on there and everything. Uh, it's a beautiful song, and it perfectly walks through Philippians chapter 3 and everything that we just talked about, knowing you, Jesus. There is no greater thing. And it's a beautiful song, um, which I'm being uh, taped, and it wouldn't have come through on the tape anyway. Nobody would have heard it but us. So it wouldn't have worked out as well as I would have liked anyway. But um, just so that everybody's aware, I highly recommend listening to that song and just really reflecting on what we've talked about and the importance of knowing Jesus in that way because it's, it's beautiful. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing that compares. You know, all the relationships that we have, so, so important in our lives, so important, the relationships that we have with, with one another. But nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Hopefully you all agree on that. <laughs> because there's uh, really... And the more you know Him, the more you want to know Him. The more you know, the more you learn of Jesus and who He is, the more you want to know Him. Because there's nothing that compares, nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. Well, we got done a little bit early tonight. I want to go ahead and... Uh, close in prayer and then um, we'll see if there's any uh, personal prayer needs after that. Father God, we thank you so much that we have that opportunity to know you. We're so thankful that because of your sacrifice on the cross, we have that opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies, to sit at your feet, Lord, and to know you that we can commune with you, that we can have conversations with you, Lord, in, in, in prayer, and that we can sit and listen for you to speak to us, Lord. And Lord, we're thankful for your word, that we can study and, and know about you through your word. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit, that you don't leave us alone, Lord Jesus, that we're never alone, that you are always with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that power of the Holy Spirit that is available to us, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that love, that unconditional love that is like nothing else. 
Lord, and I pray that each and every one of us would reflect and we would think about all of the things that we cling to that we hold in such high regard. Things, Lord, that maybe we need to let go of. Maybe we've grasped too tightly, Father, and we've allowed those things to steal our joy and cause division and anger and even hatred, Lord. I pray that we would recognize those things and let go. Let go and see it as the garbage that it is. And instead, we would cling to you. We would cling to you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for each and every person in this room, those that couldn't make it tonight. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.